Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 198. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, man, I'm excited about this topic. I'm pleased to be joined here by Clayton Green. Clayton, how are you doing? Doing very well, Steve. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Happy to have you, man. Now, you're a longstanding member of our Discord group, but for those who don't know you, why don't you go ahead and talk about who you are? So my name is Clayton Green. I am a associate professor of clinical dermatology at University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. I am primarily a practicing general medical dermatologist, pretty much the full spectrum of dermatologic diseases. I also have a PhD in microbiology, studied pathogenesis of Candida albicans, which is a fungus that inhabits most of us and in some situations can cause mildly annoying to life-threatening skin infections. I've, I'm a blue belt under Casey Lamb and Lauren Lamb. They are the owners of Synthesis Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu here in Rochester. It's a Hobson Moore affiliate school, and I've been training about seven years. I'm really happy to be on the podcast. Happy to have you. Now, I am excited about this talk, like I said, because this is a confluence of areas of expertise that I've had a really hard time trying to find the right guest for. I have wanted to talk about skincare and Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a long time, but it has proven hard <laughs> to find someone who has both a dermatology background and a jiu-jitsu background. So I'm very happy to have you here today, and my hope is that we can run through some of the common considerations when it comes to managing your skin in jiu-jitsu, something that most people probably don't put nearly enough thought into, and hopefully maybe do some myth-busting about what are good and bad ideas when it comes to things like how to take care of your skin, how to avoid and treat skin diseases that you might pick up during the gym, you know, best practices for just managing germs and other gross things that you can pick up on the mat. So very much looking forward to this chat, Clayton. Let's get it going. Yeah. So the thing I'll start with and the thing I'll end on, everything your mother told you is correct with regards to mitigating skin infections. Wash your hands, take a shower when you're done with soap and water, wash your uniform, wash your belt, wash your rash guard with detergent, dry it, and sweep up the mat and mop up the mat. We can take a deeper dive into that, but <laughs> mom was right. <laughs> well, I mean, I would hope that most gyms are at the bare minimum cleaning the mats, for instance, after practice. But I would venture to guess 
that many gyms just kind of do this in a very, very casual way. Maybe not really what you would call a deep clean, but just they do a quick sweep up afterwards and maybe spray some stuff on the mat. But I would love to know how deep do you really need to go when it comes to that cleaning that you do after jujitsu? You know, what would a good scrub look like if you're the gym owner and you want to totally sanitize this thing so you're not giving your students staff or ringworm or anything else gross like that? How far do you have to go and what would a good cleaning practice actually look like? Yeah. So in terms of mats, if everybody's healthy, you need to clean and you need to disinfect. So cleaning, you can break down into a couple steps. The first thing you do is sweep. If you've noticed sweeping at the end of a busy training session, there's hair, there's nails, there's fuzz, there's all manner of material that's come off of your teammates and their clothes. And all of those organic molecules, the hair, the fuzz, the keratin, those things are actually incredibly difficult to disinfect. They need pretty long contact times with stuff. And it's best just to sweep that stuff up. After that, there are a number of available commercial disinfectants. And at that point, after you've swept up all the hair and nails and teeth and fuzz and what have you, spray on the mats and mop them up. So I would love to know when it comes to spraying down and mopping down the mats, what is the best cleaning agent that you recommend people use? So there's several. If you're going to buy a mat disinfectant, you got to read the label because generally the FDA does regulate surface disinfectants. And so the first thing you're going to have to look for is there will be a number assigned to each disinfectant in the product. And then that number, the FDA website, you can look up the agent and it will tell you, it will list the microorganisms that this compound kills. Most, probably the most common individual agent, something called quaternium ammonia. These things mostly poke holes in microbes. Sometimes you'll have these things in combination with hydrogen peroxide, sometimes in combination with alcohol. All these things basically poke holes in microbes. And so like once you've picked a product and, and, and sort of figured out what does it kill the things you want to kill, and the big things you want to kill in your gym, it's a fairly small number of microbes in the context of skin infections. It's Staphylococcus aureus. It is a handful of fungi that cause ringworm. The genus of the most common ringworm would be Trichophyton. Epidermophyton is another one. Microsporum is another one. And then, you know, those are your two sort of cellular organisms. And then after those, you're looking at viruses. And the, the handful of viruses you care about, herpes simplex 1 and molluscum, which is a type of pox virus, these are enveloped double-strand DNA viruses. If they have an envelope, they're much more straightforward to kill. That's pretty much the germs you care about in disinfecting a mat. And most of the mat, commercial mat disinfectants are going to have activity against those organisms. So once you've looked, when you want to buy, you look at the label, it'll tell you which disinfectants are in it, what the FDA number is, and it will tell you, it lists what organisms they kill. Generally speaking, you want intermediate level disinfectant, that's one of the terms, and you want hospital grade disinfectant. That just means it's intended to disinfect non-porous surfaces that are in contact with human skin. After that, you really have to read the label some more to figure out what's the ideal solution concentration. Some of these you have to mix with water. And then what is the contact time? If you spray it on the mat, how long does it work? Most of these, it's a couple minutes. So 
you know, the, the casual sweep and wipe down that you discussed at the beginning, Steve, that with following the labeled instructions for the product, like that's going to get you in the ballpark, at least for disinfecting your mat. And so if you're, you know, if you're thinking about epidemiologic principles, one of the terms is like common source. It means what's everybody touching. And so the mats, <laughs> so that's kind of the overview of how you disinfect your mats, <laughs> read the label nice. and pick a product. Now, I would ask, one of the challenges with jujitsu mats is that usually you are not dealing with a completely flat surface. Often there's little bumps and grooves where the mats are connected together, or if they're taped together as they are in some places, if you're using like a tarp type surface, then the problem is you've got these little nooks and crannies that are probably really hard to get into and clean. And I wonder, is there a good solution for that? Because I think that the challenge with jujitsu mats is they're not as easy as cleaning a complete completely flat surface like a floor or a wall. There's just all of those little nasty places for bugs to hide in. Yeah, and so generally speaking, you have to think about where people's skin is touching. And so if people's faces aren't getting mashed into these creases, your your surface disinfecting is still going to be a reasonable strategy for reducing the chance of an infection. Got it. And in general, if you're if your mats are taped together, it's a good idea to periodically change your tape. You know, if your tape is getting frayed, the smooth surface of the tape is going away and it's down to kind of rougher, more fibrous guts of the tape. Rougher, fibrous things tend to harbor microbes longer and tend to be much more difficult to disinfect. So in this case, the organisms you really have to worry about cleaning off of surfaces are are, are the bacteria, which is mainly going to be the Staphylococcus aureus or, or Staph or MRSA. It has different names depending on the kind of infection it causes, and the fungi that cause ringworm. Like these are the things that can have sort of a their ecology can include a free living period. You know, with, with with viruses, viruses are what we call an obligate intracellular parasite, meaning viruses cannot reproduce themselves without a host cell. And so, you know, the two we really care about in terms of skin to skin contact, in the jujitsu standpoint or the grappling standpoint, are going to be the you know herpes simplex one, which causes cold sores, and molluscum. In terms of smooth surfaces, these are envelope viruses, which means when they're making themselves in a host cell, when they're finished making a fully formed like viral DNA packet, they package it in host-derived membranes. You can think of this as a protective bubble. In general, envelope viruses are a lot easier to deal with in the environment because if they aren't in a ball of pus or you know a ball of blood, they don't last as long in the environment because they're quite delicate, which is why you know you bleed on the mat you got to spray your cleaning agent and wipe it all up. Usually that's hydrogen peroxide base. So the surface disinfectant is really much more targeted towards staph and, you know, the organism that cause ringworm. Most commonly in a jujitsu standpoint, it's going to be trichophyte and tonsorans or trichophyte and rubrum. Got it. They're a little tougher than bacteria, the fungi, but not a lot more tougher. A lot more tougher. (laughs) Yeah. Got it. Well, hey, I want to use this to pivot here and let's talk about some of the gnarly things that you can catch at jujitsu. Let's talk about staff, ringworm, all of that awful stuff. I would hope that most jujitsu athletes are in agreement that these are things to take seriously, especially staff, but I think it probably merits having a good medical backed explanation of what to do to prevent these diseases and what to do if you catch them. Because I do know that there is a lot of tribal knowledge out there about what to do if you get one of these things. I'm going to guess that most of that tribal knowledge is probably 
completely or partially incorrect. With that said, I'd love to get your explanation here. Talk about these things. Talk about staph, ringworm. Like, what are they? How do you prevent them? And what do you do if you do get them? Okay. So when we talk about staph, its full name is Staphylococcus aureus. And it's named that because if you grow this thing on a particular kind of Petri dish, it gives you kind of a golden, a beautiful kind of golden colored colony. If you look at this thing under the microscope, the Staphylococcus comes from, you know, it's Latin for a bunch of grapes. It's gram-positive cocci and balls. But staph is spread also from skin-to-skin contact. The challenging thing with this is about 5% of people carry Staph aureus as normal flora. It most commonly lives in sort of the front of your nose. It can also live in your armpits, your groin, your butt crack. And between 30 and 50% of us can harbor this thing kind of transiently. So in your gym, you got 20 people, probably one person in your gym just has Staph aureus happily living on their body, not making them sick. In a healthy adult with intact skin, it doesn't generally make you sick. But with a combat sport, superficial abrasions, friction, cuts, skin rubbing, skin getting irritated. You know, staff staff has been with us for probably our entire existence as a species. It, it does not need much of an opening to penetrate your skin and make you sick. The type of infection you get from staph, it sort of depends on the strain of staph and it sort of depends on your underlying health. One of the more common staph infections you're going to see is something called impetigo, and that is a superficial infection, top layer of skin. It's usually going to be a raw, irritated, slightly painful spot. It's going to be kind of around your mouth, on your face, on your neck. And what's classic is you have a little raw spot that just doesn't go away, and it has almost like a honey crust to it. I mean, we've all had mat burn. We've all skinned our knee. Everybody knows about how long a normal superficial wound takes to heal. In a week or two, the staph infections, even a mild impetigo case, it doesn't generally go away on its own. Like it just stays there and it's kind of constantly symptomatic and aggravating. There are subvariants in impetigo called bolus impetigo, and these strains of staph have a protein they make that makes very shallow blisters. These are very irritating, very raw, also don't heal. And you can have, as an adult, more extensive involvement than just your face and neck. Like You can have it in your underarm, your groin, these raw, superficial, aggravating blisters that don't go away on their own. So that's kind of your most common, least serious version of staph. If it gets down a hair follicle, it can make an abscess, which is a big collection of pus. It's quite red, quite painful. Depending on the size, you can have fever, muscle aches, swollen lymph nodes, you can feel pretty bad. Worst case scenario, staph, a mild staph infection can actually cause an invasive infection that gets into your bloodstream and kills you. And this is just in a healthy population. So staph is sort of one of the worst things we can catch from each other. Most healthy adults, it'll be a minor nuisance infection. There are some unlucky people where it can make them very sick. And then if you have training partners who are immunosuppressed, you know, it can, it can cause even bigger problems for them. You know, there are a lot of people walking around with solid organ transplants that are still active or people that have autoimmune diseases that are being treated with pretty significant immunosuppressive medications. And so, you know, a staph infection you might not think much of because it's a raw, irritated patch. It's annoying. You could be quite serious in someone who has some form of primary immunodeficiency or some form of secondary immunodeficiency. 
Yeah, the thing about staph infections, and I am not an expert by any means, but I've been training jujitsu long enough to sort of have studied this just enough to understand the danger. They are not just a minor skin irritation. They need to be taken extremely seriously because for the people who do have those bad reactions, things can go from bad to worse real quick. You know, you can have a minor skin infection one day and then 24 to 48 hours later, you can be dead, right? It's no joke. And staff needs to be taken extraordinarily seriously. Yeah. And, you know, and so what ideally happens, so any of these things, like if you want to know, how do you know, and this is one of the things I sort of see and deal with as a dermatologist, I see the overwhelming majority of inflammatory skin diseases that I care for are not contagious. There's like a small number of contagious skin diseases, but for a grappler, if it's in your head and neck, your face, you have to kind of think about how much of your skin's exposed. And if, and if it's a raw, non-healing, irritated thing that's just not going away like it should, and it's in a place where skin touches you know, your partner's skin, you have to consider the possibility you contracted something from your, your training partner. And ideally what happens is you go to the doctor, get this looked at. Uh, staph infections are common enough that the urgent care is going to get it right most of the time. And so occasionally they get to me as a specialist, but what ideally happens is you unfortunately have to take oral antibiotics if you have a staph infection. There is a topical antibiotic prescription called mupiracin. It supposedly will work for a mild superficial impetigo. I've never seen mupiracin work by itself. It may be that those patients don't get to see me because it goes away. But in general, when mupiracin's given, it's given sort of something else to put on the raw spot while you're taking oral antibiotics. So when I see something I suspect is a staph infection, I will usually swab the thing and submit this for what's called aerobic culture and sensitivities. And the swab, staph's very easy to grow in petri dishes and in test tubes. And that swab will go to a clinical lab where they will you know, played it out, and its doubling time is 20, 30 minutes in lab conditions. So within about, you know, 24, 36 hours, you know if it's staph aureus or not. And another 12, 48 hours, they'll, they'll do something called sensitivities where they test the strain that I collect from you to see what antibiotics will kill it. There's a wide, antibiotic resistance is a pretty significant problem with staph. There's, there's a lot of ways staph can pick up antibiotic resistance genes, but usually what happens is the doc who sees you and swabs you has to do something called empiric therapy, meaning they look at you and they think, okay, this is a staph infection. I'm going to treat them with, I'm going to pick an oral antibiotic based on where this person likely got this and what antibiotic works most commonly in this community for this organism. There, there are several choices for staph, treating staph. There are the cephalosporins, the penicillin class. Those still often work well. There's the sulfa drugs. There are doxycycline, tetracycline, minocycline are options, clindamycin. We still have a number of medications we can use for treating staph. But if what happens if you go do an urgent care and or see me and it's staph and I culture, if I think you have staph, I start your antibiotic right away. It's just you might get a call two or three days later, later and say, hey, the, the staph strain you have is resistant to cephalosporin. I'm going to switch it to doxycycline or something like that. So you got to go to the doctor and you have to just accept that you're going to have to take some med- medication for this. <laughs> well, hey, I'm going to let you take a crack at these people here because you know the jiu-jitsu community as well as I do. Yeah. And I know a few things about a lot of grapplers if I'm going to uh, stereotype, right? Number one is they never want to see the doctor. Now, to some extent, I if there's a cost involved, I can understand the hesitance. Yeah. 
but I just think it's worth really emphasizing that cost or not, some of these things like staff can kill you. Or worse, kill one of your training partners, you know? Yeah, and I think that's important to to point out. These are things that aren't to be taken lightly. They start off as just a, a minor irritation, but they can do incredible damage quickly. And it probably isn't worth trying to save a few dollars if you think you have staff, right? Trying to cheap out on going to the doctor because you're worried whether you have staff, but you're thinking, oh, well, I don't want to go and then find out that I didn't have it and then I wasted the money. That's not the right attitude. You absolutely did not waste the money if you tried to take staff seriously because it is that dangerous. And I think that that's something that everyone who trains a contact sport like jujitsu needs to understand. Yeah, exactly. And so I guess the thing I would tell people to not do if they think they have a staph infection, the over-the-counter antibiotic ointments are not really, just like the prescription mepiracin by themselves, are not particularly effective. Also, tea tree oil for treating an active staph infection, not terribly effective, not effective at all. We can circle back to tea tree oil if you want later, but you really need antibiotics to clear a staph infection. And if you go and it's not staph. If you see a dermatologist, you get an alternate diagnosis. We say, no, it's not staph, but you know maybe it's a variant of eczema. Maybe it's something that's totally fine. You get reassurance. It's not staph. Or maybe you know maybe it's ringworm or maybe it's something else, but you have to respect staph, staph aureus. Now, another question I want to queue up for you. Again, you know this community as well as I do. There's going to be a lot of people out there who are saying things like, I am an all natural athlete. I don't believe in putting weird things into my body. You know, when I get these things, I'm going to take my green tea extract pills and I'll be fine or whatever. And so when you say antibiotics, there's a lot of people who are going to just immediately shy away from that because they want to be quote unquote all natural. I mean, I'm laying this one up for you, but tell me why that's a bad idea. (laughs) It doesn't work. That shit doesn't work. I mean, that's a good explanation. (laughs) I don't know how to be more blunt about that. It's, I mean, the last two years has been really challenging, you know, for the physicians and nurses out there. <laughs> you can imagine just the last two years, but now being in the trenches during all this biblical shit that's been going on. And so I guess I've gotten I've gotten a lot more blunt with patients. Most people by the time they get to me, Steve, it's things are they're miserable enough, they're they're at the table and willing to listen to my advice on taking two weeks of antibiotics to get rid of a staph infection. I mean, so there's a meme. One of my medical assistants, Maya, you know, printed out for me. It's got the picture of SpongeBob and Patrick sitting next to the open coffin. It's like when the patient doesn't want to take your medications and they're like, okay, get in. <laughs> so I'm much more likely to just bluntly tell them, it's like, this is, you're gambling with your health on something unproven. I, I guess the, the natural world is, the natural world it's super frustrating to physicians because occasionally something gets through that's correct or occasionally a folks will zero in on something that is likely true but it has a large effect size and but we don't have the tools to understand it you know the whole idea of inflammation for example you know, we talk to me about measuring inflammation we're measuring things that are grossly abnormal, this thing of severe illness, this chronic low-level inflammation that people in the natural naturopath world talk about. It probably likely is a thing. And then they talk about, oh, you just got to eat a plant-based diet. And that's actually, but that we've known that for 300 years, eat your veggies, because there's a large effect size in your health over time. But we're, it's just now 
we're only sort of starting to be able to understand the gut flora to the point to realize, okay, this is how your gut flora interacts with your immune system. This is how your gut flora interacts with your metabolism. And so sometimes they're right, but it's like we don't have the tools to explain it. And just because we don't have the tools to explain it in medicine doesn't mean I'm going to tell you how to do it. If someone's like, well, I'm just going to eat my veggies. Like, that's a fantastic idea. We've known that for centuries, you know, eat your veggies. But when it comes to staff, yeah, you're really taking a gamble with your health if you, you know, choose something besides modern medicine. And this is another frustrating thing to me. Antibiotics are actually, these were first, these these things are derived from other microbes. So I would argue antibiotics are actually, actually all natural because, in nature, on your body, microbes are kind of fighting each other for space and for habitat. And so, you know, when Fleming sort of noticed that these, uh, you know, it, penicillin was kind of discovered because there was a, one of the ways you can study microbes is you can you can have single colonies in the Petri dish or you can have like what's called a lawn, which is just like a, the whole surface of the Petri dish is like a, a literally a lawn of one bacterial strain. And, you know, the story is Fleming sort of recognized that with this, mold that had contaminated his lawn of bacteria, he noticed a really perfect zone of clearing around this and sort of realized, oh my god, this mold is poisoning the bacteria. And so I will argue with people and say these this is actually all natural too. It's derived from like a microbe. And I mean there's some chemical modifications and things like that, but I, mean, I would argue antibiotics are all natural. I mean they're not they do have their problems and you do have to discuss side effects and you know that but we actually think deeply about that in medicine. We study side effects. Like, I don't want to hurt people with my medicine. You know, I want you to get better and don't make your family and training partner sick and, you know, clear this thing up and get back on the mat. And so, <laughs> and believe me, and, you know, I practice in the U.S. and I, I, we recognize, the physicians recognize how insanely expensive healthcare is here. And I, I know how much I cost and I try to be worth it, but that's, that's part of the discussion with patients, too. If you come to see me for something, I will. If it's something you don't have to treat, that's part of the discussion, too. But staff, this is one of the ones where you really do need to take the, take the antibiotics. <laughs> Go see the doctor. Don't pop, don't pop the zit. Don't pick the scab. You know. <laughs> well, let's expand on that, because I think one of the most important things for people to understand in is when they have a problem mm -hmm. that merits medical attention. Now, you mentioned earlier some of the signs of staff that might be different, for instance, from just a regular scrape that you're going to get during jujitsu. But when it comes to really any of these diseases, staph, ringworm, warts, herpes, what are these signs that you recommend where if someone sees something, okay, it's definitely absolutely time to go to the doctor now. No more goofing around about it. No more worrying about it. You know, oh, is this going to cost me a bit of money? You must go. What is the guidelines that you would put forward for when someone has a real problem and they need to go and check that out? Pus and blisters in areas, basically head and neck, are most common, or scalp. That's kind of, those are the things where a lot of the things we, you know, talking about in this should prompt you to seek medical attention. And then generally as you add, you add symptoms to that, you add, you have swollen lymph nodes, swollen glands in your neck in the area of the pus or blisters, you have, you know fatigue, muscle ache, you feel crappy, staff, you often feel crappy. You know, th those are kind of the big ones right there. And on the scalp, you know, you know, ringworm can affect the scalp. It's called tinea capitis. If you have um, a patch of, you know, pus bumps, itchy patch of scaly dandruff that doesn't go away and your hair's falling out there and you have swollen lymph nodes, 
you know, go see the doctor. Most people don't ignore these things, though. And, and I think some of this, too, a recurring theme in the podcast has been how Brazilian jiu-jitsu is still in its sort of its infancy as a sport. Wrestlers and judoka have a pretty good handle on skin disease. You know, the wrestlers, I think because it's been such a, that long sport culture, like this, this whole idea of wrestling skincare, like they're kind of watching, they're paying attention. And so they, they tend to be a lot more aware of what things look like because it's just so much more of a, a piece of their the governing bodies. You know, there's in, in any state you look up there, in, in any state you're in, if you Google, you know, wrestling competition skin check form and then you pick your state, there's likely going to be something from the State Athletic Association that tells you, okay, if you have the skin infection, this is your criteria for being able to compete again. You know, when you tell a wrestler they can't compete, the wrestler's going to take the medicine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Now, this is something that actually is probably worth exploring as well. Are there any skin conditions where it is safe to continue training, even if you have them? Yeah. I recall, for example, one time a guy showed up to class with this big bandage wrapped around his arm. And I asked him, what happened? Is it, you know, did you get sliced up or something? And he said, oh, no, I've just got some staff, but don't worry. I've got it all taped up. And so we said, hey, better idea. How about you fuck off and go home <laughs> and you yeah. come back when you don't have staff anymore? But I'm wondering if there's any conditions where actually it's not that harmful or there's mitigating measures that you can you can go through that would make it safe to train. Now, the answer, of course, may vary depending on the condition we're talking about, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. So for infections, if you wanted to look at a really cool resource, you know, I, I was in Wisconsin for 10 years before I moved to upstate New York to close to the family. And I probably should shout out to my my gym there. And I started a place called Kinagari Dojo that started out as an Aikido school and then gradually morphed into a jiu-jitsu school. And the guy who became the head jiu-jitsu coach, Cody Stry, came and realized we had mats and wanted to grapple. But it's called WIAAWI.org, and it's you know, the Wisconsin Athletic Association. And, and they actually, so for the infections, there are recommendations for when you can train. For staff, for example, the requirement for wrestlers to compete in Wisconsin is all the lesions have to be crusted, no oozing, and no new lesions for 48 hours. And generally, for this to occur, you need oral antibiotics for about minimum 72 hours. So you can compete with a diagnosed staph infection, but you have to have no new lesions, no oozing. They all have to be crusted for the last 48 hours. And that usually in 72 hours is what, about three days of oral antibiotics? So, but no, you can't, it's a microbe, but it gets out of stuff. If you're actively infected and you're not under treatment, you are shedding contagious particles and actually quite a few of them. And you can't. And the other thing, this stuff impregnates gauze and towels and geese, you know, these, these cloth things that can harbor infectious microbes. It's another important concept. It's called a fulmite. So there are criteria for when you can train if you're infected, but generally you have to be under treatment. And generally there's a period of time you have to be under treatment. And the period of time before you can train kind of depends on the severity of the organism. So staff training after you've been diagnosed with a staph infection or competing after you've been diagnosed with a staph infection. Of the big, you know, four or five things we're going to talk about today, staph is the one that kind of has the most restrictive training and competing because it's dangerous. And so it's usually about no new lesions, everything's healed and crusted, and you've been on antibiotics for 72 hours. You know, personally, I would usually, if you, depending on the antibiotic, depending on the severity of the infection, it could be a five to 10 day treatment course. You know, personally, just out of respect for the 
my training partners. If I had a staph infection, I would finish the entire antibiotic course before I went and trained with them. But at any rate, so but in terms of things you can train with, there is an encyclopedia of inflammatory skin diseases that are not contagious. <laughs> you know, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, acne, tinea versa color, you know, something called carp, confluent reticulated papillomatosis. There's a ton of things that kind of could look sort of like ringworm, but they're usually in covered areas and they tend to be very symmetrically distributed and they tend to be a lot less symptomatic. So pretty much any non-contagious inflammatory skin disease like psoriasis, if, you're, if your training partner's got psoriasis, don't freak out. You're not going to catch psoriasis. And you know, psoriasis itself has pretty significant associations with metabolic syndrome and you know, premature cardiovascular disease. Like if, if someone's got psoriasis, man, they're on the mat. Don't freak out about their psoriasis. It's not contagious. And been some fairly famous people who have had psoriasis, like the Mickelson, the pro golfer, I think, and Leanne Rimes, and then Cindy Lauper, even if you're you grew up in the '80s. But so there's a little more awareness of psoriasis now. But yeah, there's see, there's tons of inflammatory skin diseases that are not contagious you could train with. But the actual ones you can give your training partner. There are you know most states. If you look up skin check form for this in your wrestling in your state, and you're going to get kind of rough guidelines for when the state athletic commission will allow at least wrestlers to compete. And as far as I know, this is not published for Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but you know, skin to skin contact, this is a very reasonable thing. You can draw conclusions from what's out there for wrestling. Awesome. Awesome. Now that is actually a really good transition here. You talked about psoriasis. Now we have talked so far about contagious skin conditions. And of course, when you have a contagious skin condition, you have to really be careful because in addition to taking care of yourself, you have to take care of your training partners. Yeah. But there are a whole variety of non-contagious skin conditions that are really more of a nuisance for the person who has them and not a risk to the partner. Correct. However, those are still huge nuisances for the person who has them. And I'd like to maybe run through some of these to bring awareness and also to just share some potential advice, because I know that people do struggle with these things a lot. And I know that that struggle can be especially pronounced when it comes to jujitsu. So let's start with the one that you mentioned. Let's talk about psoriasis. I think most people have probably heard of it but are somewhat ignorant in terms of what it is beyond just it's a skin condition. So tell me a bit about psoriasis and and what it is, what it looks like, and what kind of inconveniences that can cause if you're a grappler. Yeah, so I mean, so psoriasis, it's an abnormality, an overactivation of a particular type of T helper cell. And the T helpers are kind of the linchpin of your mammalian immune system, like the part of your immune system that's very specific and very targeted and has memory and things like that. The 17 is a very pro-inflammatory subset of that. So you have overactive TH17 cells. And classically, psoriasis is going to be these well-demarcated red plaques on the elbows and knees, and it has this really tightly stuck-on silvery scale. You can also have those things in the scalp and it can give you kind of a chronic dandruff feature. Scalp psoriasis almost always itches. And so that's kind of like about 15 percent of psoriasis patients have like over time of untreated a disabling autoimmune arthritis that tends to that can affect the hands, the feet, the lower back. The severity of the skin disease and the severity of the joint disease, they don't correlate. You can have very mild skin disease and very bad joint disease. You can have pretty severe skin disease, no joint disease, but psoriasis actually can kind of run the clinical spectrum of a nuisance to life ruining and disabling. I mean, I think if you've got, there's a study in the, I think 2006, 2007, and can't remember what the 
usually when you're when you when you're scoring psoriasis in practice, you score it by percent body surface area and figure your hands about one percent, right? So figure one percent of your body covered in a a thick red plaque with tight silvery scale that constantly sheds and flakes and is itchy. So I can't remember if the cutoff in the study was 15 or 20% body surface area was the cutoff for severe psoriasis. And, you know, above that, psoriasis has the same negative impact on your life that type 1 diabetes has. And so it can be a nuisance, it can be life-ruining, but it's not contagious. And, and these are people who, depending on the severity of their disease, they might be able to manage their psoriasis with a prescription topical steroid, or they might be on some of these immune-suppressive drugs. Like you see these biologic antibodies on television, you know, they might be actually your, your psoriasis buddy might be one of those people who's immunosuppressed. If you think about, okay, I don't want to give him staff or her staff. So that's kind of psoriasis. We're still trying to figure out what psoriasis is. You know, when I was in medical school, it was, this was in the sort of medical school in 1997, psoriasis was lumped into a, a subset of autoimmunity that was similar to multiple sclerosis. But at that point, the T17 cells weren't described yet. So it's kind of broad and nonspecific inflammation. Is a way to think about it. Yeah, I, I kind of went down the, the nerd rabbit hole there on psoriasis, Steve. Oh, you know, I love the nerd rabbit hole. And actually, I wanted to go a little bit deeper <laughs> and okay. ask you. So let's say someone wants to do jujitsu, or maybe they already do jujitsu and they have psoriasis. Maybe there's no way to give a blanket recommendation. I understand that's very hard to do. But is there anything that you would generally suggest to those people who are suffering with that that still want to train and grapple? Anything they can do to help manage the condition or just make it easier to train with that condition? Yeah, just, I mean, it, once again, it depends on the severity, right? So first off, if you have psoriasis, you have to exercise. You have to make that part of your life. There's been very convincing studies that show that if you are regularly engaged in exercise and you're keeping your body mass down and your obesity worsens psoriasis. So whatever it takes to get you active and losing weight, your psoriasis will be more treatment responsive and easier to manage. And that that is probably actually, we're still teasing this apart because it's, it's very complicated, but that probably actually relates to shifts in the structure of your gut flora because these TH17 cells that are abnormal and driving some of the inflammation and psoriasis, these things mature in the gut. And so, and, and with other diseases that have TH17 abnormalities like ulcerative colitis, inflammatory Crohn's disease, these have pretty well described massively abnormal, you know, gut flora. Obesity also has a pretty characteristic gut flora. And, and so when you get leaner, your gut flora shifts. And so yeah, if you have, if you have psoriasis, you got to figure out some way to make regular exercise a part of your routine, just because it's a piece of a the healthy lifestyle. I mean, you can't exercise pounds off, but it's part of a pillar of these things that can help you. Plus, you know, psoriasis tends to have significant anxiety and depression associated with it because it can be a fucking miserable disease. So there's the the mood benefits to regular exercise, the mood benefits of training with people. It doesn't have to be jujitsu, but you got to move. And so, interestingly enough, psoriasis patients aren't generally as prone to staph infections as, for example, atopic dermatitis patients. And so, staph. So, my recommendation for psoriasis patients for mitigating infection risk—it's all the same basic stuff, man. After you're done training, go shower with soap and water. You know, throw and make make sure you're throwing your gi, your rash guard, your belt. Throw all that in the wash. Make sure the temperature of the wash is optimized for the detergent you're using, and then throw everything in the dryer, 
right? So, so, so for psoriasis patients, my recommendations for mitigating risk of infections is no different from anybody else's, but some of these people are on immunosuppressive drugs. And so the newer stuff is better and less immunosuppressive than the older stuff, but the older stuff can still be used. But maybe if you're on one of these systemic agents for your for any autoimmune disease, you really do need to be a little more conscious about showering immediately after you train with soap and water. Right. Good advice. Good advice. Now, I would pivot off this, and let's talk about another skin condition that is uh, often comes up in conversations about jujitsu. Let's talk about eczema. What exactly is eczema, and how can that impact your jujitsu training if you're a grappler with that condition? So, eczema is a primarily a dysfunction of your skin barrier. We have something on the outer layer of skin called the stratum corneum, and it is this highly complex dynamic lipid and protein, almost like a, a seal that basically allows us to live outside of water. And there's a protein called filigrin, which is one of the really important proteins in kind of holding this together and making it a tight seal. The majority of people with eczema or atopic dermatitis have a gene mutation that causes a shortened filigrin, so they don't have as tight of a seal. And so there's constant low-level trans-epidermal water loss that makes their skin prone to being dry and itchy. But the other piece of that is the stratum corneum is not doesn't have your living skin cells. It has it's like kind of a seal. Your living skin cells beneath the stratum corneum that kind of make the stratum corneum are called your keratinocytes. Embedded within the keratinocytes are other immune cells called dendritic cells, and beneath that, in the cushion layer of the dermis, are other immune cells, mast cells, neutrophils, all kinds of things. When your keratinocytes sense transepidermal water loss, it is a very strong danger signal for them. They're processing that as, hey, there's an opening, stuff can get in, and so these keratinocytes have this constant sort of stimulus to produce kind of pro-inflammatory hormones to call in other immune cells. And so these, you know, these people with eczema or atopic dermatitis have kind of a dry, itchy skin that can become very sensitive and can break out in incredibly itchy rashes, like sort of without warning. Because of some of the immunologic abnormalities that are in their skin, because of the constant sort of disruption of their skin barrier, you see a lot more staph carriage in patients with eczema, and then they're a lot more prone to the staph infections. And so when you have atopic dermatitis, how you take care of your skin becomes much more important than people without atopic dermatitis because your skin is, your skin barrier is not functioning optimally. Anything you do, you have to kind of think about how am I repairing my skin barrier? You know, sometimes people are surprised how much I talk about moisturizing in my practice. Moisturizing is stratum corneum barrier repair. If you take a person who has atopic dermatitis, and you moisturize them correctly, you blunt some of that transepidermal water loss, and you blunt some of that pro-inflammatory signal to the keratinocytes. And so this is a very important piece of skincare for eczema. So if you have eczema, so part of this is they have to be very careful in the soaps they pick. They have to think carefully about how often they bathe. They have to think carefully about how hot the water is. Very hot water tends to be much harder on the skin. So with a patient who has atopic dermatitis, and I tell them the same thing. You got to shower after you train and you got to wash with the soap. But I would say in your case, you got to pick a cool or a lukewarm shower. And there are very specific soaps I tend to recommend for them. Can I say brand names on here? 
Go for it. Okay, Dove Sensitive Skin, the bar form, is probably the gentlest soap on the market. So like for an atopic patient, eczema patient, be like, bring your own Dove bar soap to the gym. Or if you can go right home after you train, take your shower, and then after your shower, you need to moisturize with a a thicker, fragrance-free moisturizer. And so generally, the greasier, the better. My favorite thing for eczema patients is is Vaseline. Unfortunately, white petrolatum is kind of gross. And so once you're beyond about nine months old, moisturizing with Vaseline all over your body is just not practical. There are other moisturizers. Basically, if it's in a tub and you scoop it and it doesn't smell like anything, it's a good choice. <laughs> That's a really interesting way to to break down what works and what doesn't. That's good advice. Now, hey, I would just want to clarify. I think I've learned something here. I've been calling it eczema my whole life. Is it actually eczema? It's called both, Steve. It's You're not wrong calling it that. Interesting. Maybe that's just my crazy Canadian accent coming out again. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know it. I don't know if it's... it's I, was, I was wondering, is this a ZZ thing? I just don't know. It might be. You know, it blew my mind when I started this podcast that in I did not realize in the United States, people do not say lever. This came up. Apparently, it's a lever. Yeah. Had no idea that that was one of the tells that I'm from Canada, but yet here we are. <laughs> but those are kind of the two bigger ones. Like, eczema is quite common, and that one is also has significant variability in how severe it is. And it tends to often run hand in hand with seasonal allergies and asthma. You don't necessarily have all of them, but if you have one, you're kind of at risk for all the other ones. And it's highly complex. It's actually being researched, but the skin care for that's pretty low tech. I guess I would also say if you have if you have atopic dermatitis, these are other people you have to think about. Like if you have a cold sore on your lip, you can transmit that to someone grappling, and that's called herpes gladiatorum, right? And so if you've had a cold sore, that's kind of like the next thing that's sort of the next sort of serious possible thing after staph. Like staph is the big bad. Cold sores are kind of the other thing, but they aren't as bad as staph, but they can cause some pretty significant problems. And so you really shouldn't train with a cold sore. Most people have cold sores, but if you've never had a cold sore on your lip, that's its favorite environment. You can get a cold sore outside the lip. And so if you get a cold sore on your neck, on your face, or in your eye, you can, you know, in the eye, it can be god-awful, right? So the way cold sores work, it's also an envelope, double-stranded DNA virus. Your first infection with that tends to be god-awful severe, like a lot of pain, multiple blisters, swollen lymph nodes. But then after you get through that, subsequent recurrences, and they do recur because we can't cure herpes, whether it's a cold sore or genital herpes, they're cousins without the same virus, but like the cold sore tends to come back in the same place every time after your first severe infection. Now, if you have a cold sore just on your lip, you shouldn't get it anywhere else outside the lip. But if you've never had a cold sore and then you're somehow dodged getting a cold sore in your life and it happens and then you're, you know, grappling with someone who has a fairly mild cold sore, your first case of herpes could be a pretty extensive blistering outbreak on one side of your face that causes eye inflammation. And it can come back. It, it tends to be less likely to come back after the primary infection if it's outside your lip, but it can. And so you can have a you know recurrent painful herpes outbreak on your face, on your neck, in your eye. And so now that I'm back on herpes, people with eczema can have something called eczema herpeticum, like because of the, the immunologic abnormalities in their skin, because of the barrier dysfunction of their skin they can have a much more severe and much more extensive and potentially fatal outbreak of herpes with their initial infection. 
And so I, I guess, you know, it's good for them not to train with a cold sore because once again, you know, it's not as serious as staph, but like in terms of skin infections, you're going to catch from your training partners, the cold sore or herpes simplex virus one can wreck people. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. And something that a lot of people don't think about. I mean, sometimes these things that one person to them, it might seem really minor because they've already got it and they've lived with it their whole life. Yeah. That can have pretty significant consequences to the people you train with. So I think the takeaway is number one, if you have a cold sore, don't train. And number two, if your partner has a cold sore, don't train with them and tell them to stop training. Yeah. And that one too, in the wrestling world, you know, if you're looking for how to think about this, if you have it or how to, you know, if you're a coach and you want to, you know, ask your students to look out for their health, you know, at least in Wisconsin, you have to have all lesions scabbed, no oozing, and no new lesions for the last 72 hours. And generally you have to complete 10 days of antiviral medication treatment. The antiviral medications are acyclovir and valacyclovir. The biggest problem with valacyclovir Valacyclovir is it's, the pill is giant. It is a giant one gram blue pill. Like it's literally the size of a Mike and Ike's candy. So <laughs> swallowing two of those things a couple times a day for ten days, it's annoying. It doesn't cure herpes. It decreases shedding of viruses. It reduces the pain. Herpes hurts and uh, hurts like hell, and especially at extensive or a first outbreak. And then, but it, it shortens duration of healing. So I get a cold sore. It's annoying. I don't go train. You know, I take my Valtrex for two days, and if I do nothing... So herpes is another example. Someone's like, I don't want to treat this. And if it's a mild cold sore case, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to treat... You know, I won't push someone to take pills for a cold sore because they they go away on their own in about two weeks. If you take the pill, which is very specific to the virus, you know, more from the machinery the virus uses to replicate itself. If you, if you take the, the two days of, or the one day of valacyclovir, you're looking at, you know, usually in me, I take it because I'm going to train again. My sores are healed in a week. It's about two-thirds less painful. It's much smaller, and, and it's much less gross-looking. So I guess in general, the topical prescription antivirals kind of sort of work. Like maybe they shorten duration a day or two. They are stupidly expensive, you know, topical antiviral meds. for. So I'm, I'm not a fan of those. The lysine doesn't do much. But once again, this is a big example of something like, you don't have to treat this, but if you do, you could be on the mat sooner. But if you're willing to stay off the mat for two weeks until this thing completely crusts and heals to not give your training partners, you know, cold sores, then okay, you should be off the mat a little longer. It's a distant cousin to genital herpes. You guys have, I mean, if you're giving your training partners genital herpes, you guys have had extensive discussions on this podcast already about <laughs> romance in the gym and conditions where it's a bad idea. So just be aware of that. So, you know, staph can also be a sexually transmitted infection too. But in that case, it tends to be, you know, your staph outbreaks in the bathing trunk area. So, but yeah, herpes can wreck your eczema, friends. Well, thank you for bringing that up. One other thing I'd like to get into is a condition that probably everyone deals with at some point in their life, uh, and that is acne. Now, there's different situations where acne can impact your training. One is you have it as a prior condition and you're trying mm -hmm. to figure out, okay, how can I manage this while I'm doing this full contact sport that can be very abrasive to my skin? But the other is sport-induced acne, which is a thing, right? If you have right. constant abrasion against your skin, especially against surfaces with lots of bacteria on them, you can get acne from athletics. This is a common thing, for example, in wrestling where people sometimes get acne 
acne along the line of their face where their head strap goes because right. the constant abrasion of the gear against the skin can lead to that. So I'd love to get your opinion on this because this is, I mean, it's obviously not a dangerous condition, but it's still a terrible condition. Yeah. And it's going to impact everyone to various degrees at some point in their life. So I would love your feedback here. So we, we have tons of treatment for acne. We have a lot of good treatment, a lot of effective treatment for acne. The name dermatologists call the chin strap acne is acne mechanica. You know, anywhere of chronic friction, you can get, you know, secondary frictional inflammation of the hair follicles or the pilosebaceous unit, if you want to be fancy. Generally, your first line treatment for that is actually, there are a couple of good over-the-counter acne medications. And generally speaking, it's either benzoyl peroxide based, anywhere from 4 to 10%, usually as a foaming wash. Benzoyl peroxide wipes or gels, the leave-on products, tend to be quite irritating. So I tend to steer patients towards the washes. They tend to be less irritating. You have to be aware that benzoyl peroxide washes, benzoyl peroxide is a bleaching product. So you know, if you aren't rinsing it off carefully or if you're using a leave-on product, they can kind of acid wash things it's in contact with. So if you're a wash rag kind of person, you know, be aware of that. Don't use your mom or your, don't use mom's nice wash rags to put the benzoyl peroxide on. Use the old beat up ones. That's often, for a mild case of acne, that benzoyl peroxide is often go- really good in combination with salicylic acid products. Those are also widely available over the counter for acne. That that combination is fairly effective for mild acne. The biggest kind of thing I think people miss with acne is you have to treat a good three months to see if whatever you're doing is going to work for your acne. And if it's a normal teen acne or frictional acne, it's kind of a chronic condition. Like you have to continue your treatment as maintenance to keep it gone. So for a teenage boy or a young man, that combination for mild acne, which is a few zits, not too painful, not too much scarring, and how bothered and how motivated are you to treat this? And how I think of James Clear stuff, like how, how can you make, what can you recommend for this kid to make treatment successful, right? And so I tend to, any acne regimen I do often has the benzoyl peroxide wash and the 5% salicylic acid wash. Just get a pump of each in your hand and do it when you're in the shower, right? So now if you're training every day, or frequently, you know, wash your face with your acne products. Like you now have a routine to anchor your acne treatment to. If you come to me for, you know, prescription treatment, uh, for men, if you have significant scarring acne, we generally do, we do use antibiotics for acne, usually as a start. Doxycycline is one of the more commonly used ones for acne. If I see inflammatory scarring acne, or if I see a patient who you know, has a darker complexion, the inflammatory acne tends to hyperpigment. And so I tend to treat, I tend to treat my more darkly pigmented patients who hyperpigment with scarring. I tend to treat them more aggressively than my pasty patients who don't hyperpigment as much. Like meaning like, you know, fewer inflammatory lesions, I might offer a systemic agent immediately for, you know, my, my patients who hyperpigment. So, but doxycycline is a kind of one of the more commonly used antibiotics, has one of the better safety profiles. We're trying to get away from using it long term, and so usually I will give a, someone a three-month course of that in combination with the salicylic acid benzoyl peroxide wash, and then I generally have them use something called a retinoid, which these are related to vitamin A, and you put it on your skin. It's a hormone that has broad effects on the keratinocyte. Like it normalizes differentiation of these things in the pilosebaceous unit, so there isn't quite as much plugging. They're broadly anti-inflammatory as well. And so it's just like, it's like, it does a little bit of everything. And if I see them in three months and they're okay where they are, 
you know, based on the old clinical trials, you could in theory stop the oral antibiotics and just control them topically. I've never seen that happen. But, you know, if I stop the antibiotic and they flare, the next thing, I, my teenage boys, I try to get them on Accutane as soon as possible because six to nine months of Accutane can completely cure their acne about two thirds of the time. Or if the acne comes back, it's much more treatment responsive. It's kind of like a control-alt-delete for your skin. And then at that point, maybe the benzoyl peroxide sal acid works. Accutane is treated like it's weapons-grade plutonium. Unfortunately, the biggest problem with that drug is if a woman gets pregnant on it, it does cause severe birth defects because it's related to vitamin A. Vitamin A is a very important hormone in making normal limbs and making a central nervous system. So if you if you get pregnant on that stuff, yeah, you're you're either going to have a spontaneous pregnancy termination because this is so toxic, or you're going to have a severely, severely malformed fetus if it survives. And so that doesn't apply to men. And actually, the Accutane, if you're treating a teenage boy with that, it's, you know, looking at the studies, honestly, it's actually probably a safer drug than some of the other antibiotics, like the sulfa antibiotics or even menocycline, because there's some, in Durham, we're all afraid of sulfa-based antibiotics. We've all seen the god-awful, you know, severe allergic drug reaction, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermolacrolysis, like the kind of drug reaction that lands you in the burn unit and potentially kills you, we see with the sulfa antibiotic. So while if you have a bad staph infection, the sulfa antibiotic may be the right antibiotic. And maybe you just have to take it for 10 days and, you know, call if all of a sudden you're blowing up in rashes or fevers. But for acne with other choices of management, we tend to steer away from the sulfa drugs. But Accutane, it's a wonderful drug. My teenage kid went through a course a few years ago. But yeah, the birth defect thing is real. Doesn't apply to men, though. I, I guess with women, if they have an inflammatory acne, depending on you know how they feel about the treatment, combined oral contraceptives can be a fantastic acne treatment for women, particularly if they have the chin and jawline acne, the adult female acne variant that flares with their menses. I will, in a young woman, even you know, 13, 14 years old, I'll still offer combined oral contraceptives for acne you know, before I'll offer antibiotics. They're, they're much better tolerated, better safety profile. And then if they need Accutane, you know, they can still stay on the pill because it can be a very good long-term non-antibiotic option. And we've we've been, I mean, acne is one of those kind of bread and butter dermatology things, Steve. I see acne all the time. And so it's a conversation I have almost on a daily basis. We, We have great medicine for acne. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, acne, like I said, is something that almost everyone goes through in their lives. I know I certainly have. And I remember doing a bunch of research into the different treatment methods. And you're right. There is so much weird misinformation around Accutane. It is something that, like you said, people treat like it's weapons-grade plutonium. But I'm currently under the impression that a lot of the the fear around it is basically just straight-up misinformation. I'm aware of the situation where you can't take it while you're pregnant. But beyond that, my understanding is that people often grossly overstate how, quote, unquote dangerous it is and that is actually yeah. generally a lot safer than one would expect oh wait yeah totally i, I mean honestly someone with bad enough inflammatory acne i would like to just skip antibiotics and go straight to accutane honestly i think that's you can make a case for that but no the birth effect thing it is real it's like it's i mean we think deeply about side effects man and we do, and people make academic careers studying frequencies of side effects like we don't i mean outside of jujitsu like I mean, I don't want to hurt my training partners, but I especially don't want to hurt my patients, you know? And so we think deeply and we study side effects. And even after the trials, there's post-marketing analysis, there's studies looking and saying, okay, how frequently, how frequently are side effects happening? The birth effect thing, that is virtually guaranteed. 
But the Half-Life, when you're on Accutane, you're only on it maybe six to nine months. And so once you're off the stuff, your body clears it entirely. So this is only while you're on the Accutane that this is a risk. Like Once you're off the Accutane, get as pregnant as you want. Give it a month, go to your system, and then go have babies if you want. Like It's, it's not a permanent thing. So it's because of, because of that, you know, because of the restrictions around that, it, it's kind of cumbersome and annoying to prescribe in the U.S. But if someone's putting you on Accutane, your dermatologist ought to be able to sit and have this conversation with you. It's just a almost a weekly thing, you know. And I take care of so much just god-awful biblical shit in my job that doesn't have good medications for, you know, like some of the horrible things pyramidangrenosum i mean i take there's some god-awful things we see and and where we are now in upstate new york like it's about six million people it's mostly a rural state outside of new york city and so where i currently am we're the tertiary care center so i, I freaking see everything and so with accutane and acne i actually have a good medication that will make your acne go away so it's kind of a relief to have a good tool and treating some of the skin diseases I do, I kind of make I make the analogy of like, well, okay, you need a tool for a job, right? You have a nail, for example, and you have to drive this nail through a board. And so some of our diseases, I have hammers, right? For psoriasis, I have hammers to drive the nail. For acne, I have really good hammers. I have like a, you know, for Accutane's like a premium, beautifully balanced German steel hammer. It works fantastically for the right variants of acne. But some of the stuff I treat... I don't have a hammer. I have a nail and I have like a heavy wooden clog and a wine bottle and a rubber chicken. Like those are my tools for driving a nail, you know? And so it's like, I can maybe drive the nail if the bottle doesn't break or I can, I can hit the nail. But so yeah, you know, it's, just, it's frustrating how terrified everybody is of Accutane when we know what the big bad is, you know, and we, we have ways to mitigate the risk of the big bad and the big bad's the birth defects. And Everything else is either a side effect that was disproven or a side effect that's annoying. Yeah, yeah, and goes away when you're off the Accutane. So, so sorry to rant about. No, th this is actually really important to me because I I know that there is a ton of misinformation around Accutane, and I think it's also worth driving home that, like you said, although the the risk of birth defects is real. That is only a risk while you are on the cycle of Accutane. It's not like yeah. you take Accutane and you can never have children for right. the rest of your life. Right. It is literally during the period that Accutane is in your system, you can't have kids. But that only goes on for, like you said, it's a round of six to nine months yeah. in a lot of cases. Yeah, and probably cure acne. It's like, really? And acne, God, I mean, acne itself, just like, you know, there's mild nuisance acne and then there's just like god-awful disfiguring, scarring acne where... You can change someone's life within three months of this drug. Their face is clear now, and you know, and their confidence goes up, and they feel great. And so, no, I, you know, it's a drug I really, I really value. And to clarify, that one of the differences between Accutane versus the other treatments is that Accutane is not maintenance. Accutane is actually a cure, right? It can, it can. It doesn't always cure, but it has the potential to cure your acne as opposed to the rest of them. And the kids who respond the best tend to be the kids with the central facial trunk, severe inflammatory acne, those are the kids that tend to cure, you can cure with acne. The adult female variant, which is sort of the chin and jawline type that flares the period, you can make that go away with a course of Accutane. That tends to come back and be kind of stubborn. And we have other options for that. But yeah, for the most common acne variants, I mean, there's a lot of nuance in the act in treating acne, but the sort of the most common variants, yeah, you can shut it down. Right, right. Well, hey, something else I want to talk about here, and it doesn't really, I think, fall into the category of a, a medical condition, but it is a thing that a lot of us deal with, myself included, is just 
very sensitive skin. I mean, a lot of people are just incredibly susceptible to getting bruised or marked up. Some people just their, their skin gets sliced up all the time while training. I am one of those people. I remember being told by my instructor when I started, because I, I mentioned that, you know, my feet are getting caught up doing this jujitsu thing. And he said, oh, just train harder, train more often and your feet yeah. will callous and then you'll <laughs> never have that problem. Bullshit. I've been training for 14 years. And to this day, I still have problems with my skin getting sliced up and bruised like crazy. And it is a real problem. I mean, I work a, a desk job. I have to give a lot of presentations. And if I go to jujitsu and I train, especially in the gi, just the friction from the gi covers me with like red marks and bruises all over my face and my neck and my arms. And that doesn't even get into the when I actually get my skin cut up, right? That's another problem. And this can be more than just a general nuisance for people. Like I mentioned in my case, it can be career impacting. I have female friends who have been significantly inconvenienced because they've been reported as being the victim of domestic abuse because they were showing up to work covered with bruises, which yeah. were jujitsu induced, right? I mean, and I will tell you that domestic abuse screening is part of what we do as physicians. And if I see a, somebody covered in bruises, like I ask them, hey, is anybody, anybody hitting you? And then usually if someone, it was more commonly affects women. I'm not saying men can't be abused, but it's more commonly affects women. And, you know, <laughs> so occasionally you get, you get one who's just, yeah, I train. You know, I train a combat sport. Then you get to have the fun conversation. Yeah, me too. Then we have a fun conversation. Where do you train? And so, yeah, like ladies who listen, who train combat sports, like, look, man, your doctors ask you all these deeply personal questions. Like, is someone doing this to you? Are you feel safe at home? Like, we're trained to do this and offer you. Someone is doing this to me, but it was completely consensual and I paid for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You didn't have so I tend to exude kind of a non-judgmental fatherly vibe. I'm 47 years old. And so sometimes you uncover some really, maybe some things you, you weren't prepared to hear and it's not domestic abuse, but it's consensual stuff. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I mean, it, then you say, okay, it, just be warned this conversation, you know, if this recreational activity is leaving you bruised, Every physician who sees one of these, every nurse who sees you is going to ask you about this, all right? You might have to have this conversation about your recreational time with any healthcare provider who's trained to think about, you know, domestic abuse. But I don't know, Steve, the people who bruise easily that I see most commonly, you're what, late 30s, early 40s? Yeah, I'm turning 40 this month, actually. Okay. 30 was hard for me, dude. 40 was easy. I had two broken ribs and two kids in diapers. And I think you got a little kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're probably not going to notice 40, but that sounds like a lot of bruising to me. I mean, the people who I see who bruise, more commonly bruise easily, it tends to be very pasty older patients who have had a lot of sun exposure and the UV light kind of damages their collagen in the dermis. And the collagen in your dermis, you can think about collagen as a steel cable that sort of cradles your capillaries and things. And that's one of the things that sort of protects your skin from shearing effects and protects you from bruising and easy cuts. So, but there is a family of genetic conditions called Ehlers-Danlos, and it's any number of sort of problems in how your body makes and processes collagens. And we have a number of different collagen molecules that support things in our body and dermis. And, and it, it can run the variant from being, there are certain severe, severe variants that present in childhood, but there's a lot of people walking around that have kind of mild variants of this. And so not to like, you know, diagnose you on your podcast, but that might be something you want to look into, you know? That does seem like a lot of bruising to me for otherwise healthy adult male. 
Yeah, yeah. I do get marked up really, really easily, and it is unusual. Not many of my training partners have the same thing, but I do know that it does exist. George St. Pierre, Fedor Emelianenko, famously marked up like crazy. That was always a discussion with them when their fights went to decision because they could dominate a fight and just beat the snot out of their opponent, yeah. but they would still look like the one who took more damage because they just marked up more easily. Yeah. So it is a consideration for sure. Yeah. I would also love to pivot this conversation into more a topic of prevention and just good maintenance routines. A lot of the things that you talked about already are not really advice that are specific to a certain condition, but they're just good advice across the board. The The big one that stands out to me, you talked about the importance of, uh, of cleanliness and of moisturizing, like not enough dudes, especially moisturize and you can fix a lot of problems by doing that so i'd love to get your thoughts on just good prevention and maintenance practices for skincare that'll take better care of your skin make it less likely for you to get these diseases make it less likely for your skin to get all cut up and screwed up yeah. any good maintenance suggestions you have i, I definitely want to share yeah everybody could benefit from the same kind of things that i that i recommend for patients with eczema it's just if you don't have eczema or sensitive skin your skin can take a lot more punishment. It's happier if you're using a gentle soap and you're moisturizing, right? And so and think of moisturizing as barrier repair. So when you get out of a bath or shower, your stratum corneum is completely hydrated and happy. If you don't put a moisturizer on when your skin's still damp, some of that moisture will evaporate and it'll take a little bit of moisture with it. So you can have kind of a little bit of transepidermal water loss after your shower if you don't moisturize immediately. If you don't have eczema or, you know, some, some problem with your stratum corneum, it's not that big a deal. Like maybe you're a little ashy or dry and a little itchy in the winter, but just pick the easiest thing, man, pick a gentle soap. You know, the one I use is Dove Bar because it's the gentlest and, or one of the gentlest. And then after your shower, just Pick a moisturizer with a texture you like. If you don't have eczema, the one you use is less important to me. Once again, it's like the, the power of habit. You pick pick something you like and you use that after your shower while your skin's still damp. That's how you moisturize as a guy. Got it. And it's literally that simple. Less is more. Obviously, you know, the thing, don't smoke. Smoking is also bad for your skin. It results in you know, damaging your collagen, you age quicker, you have volume loss in your face more quickly when you smoke. You know, the sun, sunlight, UV light does cause skin cancer. You know, I was in central Wisconsin for 10 years. I took care of a lot of very fair skin, old farmers of you know, Germanic, Norwegian, and Polish ancestry. I would have days where I was removing 15 or 20 skin cancers a day. You don't have to go crazy with stuff, really. Just the worst waves of sunlight are between like the narrowband UVB, the one that's got the strongest association with mutations in your keratinocyte DNA. Those are between 10 in the morning, about three in the afternoon. If you have to be outside in that time, something as simple as a broad brim hat and a long sleeve collared shirt will go a very long way from, for protecting you from the sun. Sunscreen does kind of work, but the problem with sunscreen is it really wears off pretty quickly, despite what the label says waterproof it, not really like you really if you work a desk job you're inside like one moisturizing application of sunscreen to your face after you shave is probably fine but if you're going to be outside at the beach at the lake you really have to reapply the sunscreen about every half hour to, for it to do its job correctly so I, I tend to for my own self i tend to use protective clothing more broad brim hat long sleeve shirts 
If I'm swimming, I'm in a broad brim hat and one of my ridiculous loud jujitsu rash guards. So, you know, sun protection goes a long way towards helping you age well. But really, you know, there's so much nonsense in the skincare world. It's almost as bad as the supplement world. And you really don't need that complicated of a skincare regimen if you're otherwise healthy. You need a gentle soap, a moisturizer, a broad brim hat, and a long sleeve shirt for your outside middle of the day. So that's kind of like, you know, and for men, that's great. Men don't generally want to do complicated self-care <laughs> routines, but it's hilarious. I have a nine-year-old daughter and my God, she's on TikTok, TikTok, <laughs> dadded up TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> I know, TikTok. I, I'm so used to like dadding things up on purpose and appropriating my children's slang and like you goof it up on purpose. I I call it TikTok on purpose, but you're right. Like now I'm going to have a TikTok, but TikTok is a cesspool. And I probably shouldn't name things by name on your pot, but it's like in general, well-intentioned misinformation. So like my daughter will watch these things. And so she seems to finally recognize dad is actually a skin expert. And so I'll get to watch a TikTok. She's like, daddy, is this right? And I'll watch. I'm like, yeah, that's legit. No, that's nonsense. That's legit. That's nonsense. I'm like, thank God she actually trusts me because I'm telling her, like, honey, you don't need to do that much to your skin. So, and, and less is more because your skin, people don't seem to understand your skin is actually, it's not just a seal to make terrestrial life possible. It is a very powerful immunologic organ that can absolutely wreck you if you make it mad. So generally less is more. Well, hey, something else I want to ask you, you talked earlier about how skin to skin contact is of course a big consideration when you're doing any sort of full contact sport like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Is it advisable to cover more of your body? So for instance, instead of going topless, wearing a like a rash guard or even better, a long sleeve rash guard, wearing spats, is that stuff going to help you reduce the risk of catching something or is the material too thin to make a difference? So I don't know. And I don't know that it's been looked at directly. I actually spent a lot of time looking in the scientific literature before I came on this podcast, Steve. I didn't know what you were ask, but like... I can tell you that in general, the indirect evidence for that suggests that, yeah, covering more tends to protect you more. Because the ghee, the ghee, even though a ghee can harbor microbes, that's actually for a microbe to get through your ghee, for staff to get through your ghee and through your rash guard and into your armpit, that's actually, even though those things can harbor those microbes, that's a very long distance for that to travel to get there. Right, and they don't—they're not really mobile. Most of these things, we, I mean, some germs can wiggle and move and have flagella and things like that. But staff, staff just kind of has to sit there and wait until you touch it. And so, when when you look at you know some of the studies on outbreaks of judo and ringworm and tinea capitis and judo, like it's almost always on exposed surfaces. And so, it's not directly looked at, but indirectly, I'd say, yeah, covering does seem to result in outbreaks that are in exposed skin. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I've always wondered when I see these pictures on social media of these dudes like rolling at full intensity, topless and taking topless photos. I've always wondered, okay, that's got to be bad for skin transmission. There's got to be some weird gnarly stuff that you're <laughs> passing back and forth to each other if you're rolling around doing uh, not just no gi, but no shirt. <laughs> like you're basically naked rolling around with someone. That has got to be bad for transmission of things like staph and ringworm. It, it definitely removes a barrier. You know, no, no one's done controlled trials on that. But yeah, the outbreaks, the outbreaks reported and where the infectious things show up does tend to be on exposed skin. You know, I don't have a space bubble necessarily. And 
I, I don't have any problem with the human body. I look at skin all day, every day. I think just the things I'm used to sort of would make your average person faint. But I just, I can't roll topless like that, man. As much as I love my training partners, that's just, I don't want that much skin to skin contact. <laughs> yeah, I am the same. I want at least that that millimeter of spandex between us, bare yeah. minimum, right? I get that that's really thin, but still, I you know, I don't want to feel your like chest hair grinding against no, my chest hair. No, no, but it's just uh, that little reminds me of you know another thing having a daughter, like kind of talking to her and teaching her you know, exposing her to the concept of boundaries, like little, little boundaries are important. And to, to me, stuff between the skin of me and my training partners is a boundary I like. But yeah, I think the indirect evidence would suggest that covered areas are less likely to get, you know, because think about like, if you're both in a gi, like you now have a rash guard, a gi, a gi, a rash guard, like I don't know how a microbe that's not modal would trans, but you gotta wash your ghee. That's, you know, fomite. That's a fomite. Your ghee material does harbor staff. And if it hangs out long enough, it will, it will multiply. So wash your ghee, wash your rash guard, wash your belt, like wash these things are fomites. Now this might seem like an obvious question, but it's probably actually worth asking because I certainly didn't know this coming into jujitsu and it's something that I had to learn. How do you wash your equipment properly? I used to just throw my gi and stuff in a regular, normal load of laundry. So I'd put it in, normal, put it in the dryer, normal. And I know a lot of people don't even put it in the dryer. They believe in using the, like, quote-unquote Brazilian method of letting it air dry. And I, I think, you know, maybe that works in Brazil where you got a lot of sunlight and you could just air dry and disinfect. But in Vancouver, here where I live, I don't think air drying is going to be that helpful. But what I found when I just did a basic wash is within about two months, all of my stuff would just be so smelly that I'd basically have to throw it out and replace it. And I've changed my routine now when I wash stuff. I mean, I've got this awesome washer dryer that can do what, what it calls a sanitized load. Basically, it's like uh -huh. a longer wash at very, very high heat. And I also use, I add vinegar to my wash as an antimicrobial. And since then, I've had way less problems with, um, with my material smelling. It's been much easier to clean it. Am I on the right track here, or is there a, a better way that you recommend for how people should sanitize and wash their equipment? No, you are. So, and some of this has actually been looked at experimentally. There's actually a lot of active research on cleaning and disinfecting because kennels are hotbeds of ringworm for your animals. Daycares, if, if you have kids in daycare, you're going to be sick all the time the first year. Hospitals, like there's a lot of knowledge out there on how you disinfect fabric to not make people sick. And so I can think of one study where they, they used gauze and they sort of dumped ringworm fungus on the gauze and they looked at washing conditions to get rid of the get rid of the ringworm. So if they washed the gauze with detergent and a washer at the like the cool setting, it didn't eradicate the ringworm from the gauze. If they wash it just like your normal, I, th I think it's 130 degrees. Like, but like the normal, the normal hot cycle in the washer, center wash with detergent, that would actually get rid of the ringworm, right? So if you, at least under experimental conditions, if, if you're washing your ghee on a cold wash cycle and, and you're hang drying it, under experimental conditions, that's not adequate to get rid of fungus, you know, ringworm fungus in gauze. This is not a ghee, and I guarantee you the, the microbial load they're dumping on this gauze 
is not going to be what you're getting in the gym. But at least under experimental circumstances, if you're the hot wash, if you're not going to run it through the dryer, the hot wash does appear to be better at getting rid of at least ringworm, all right? And, and staff, almost certainly staff too. Staff can also infect clothes and same thing, hot wash for staff. UV light is a very potent disinfectant. You know, UV light fries things, but in my PhD, there were times I would work in, you know, to work in tissue culture, you know, culturing mammalian cells and bacteria love tissue culture. It's such a, it's like, it's like a buffet for them. So when you're done with your stainless steel hood, when you're doing tissue culture, you have a UV light you turn on that like just obliterates everything. But the concentration of UV light has to be pretty intense to function as a disinfectant. And your ghee is thick. UV light can only penetrate so deeply. So it's unlikely if you're hot washing your ghee, fine, hang it up outside. The hot washing detergent, though, or what's actually doing anything, the UV light is not really doing anything significant. It's not penetrating that deep into your ghee for a full disinfection. One of the things about this the study with the you know germs and the gauze, they didn't have an arm where they washed it at different temperatures and threw it in the dryer. So it was like, well, why not? Why didn't you do that? Because if they impregnated the gauze with ringworm fungus and threw it in the dryer, that wasn't enough. Like it survived the dryer. You know, we know for staff, you know, washing and drying takes care of it. You know, we can assume probably for ringworm the same thing, but this is one of those things about that comes up with experimental conditions is you have to try to look at the question you're trying to answer in the real world, look at the experimental evidence and say, okay, how much like the gi in jujitsu is this gauze? But no, Steve, you are on the right track, man. Hot wash, detergent, throw it in the dryer, you're good. Your gi is disinfected. The vinegar, I don't know. The vi- I mean, vinegar is good just for stinky things in general. It's not Vinegar is also not super potently antimicrobial. It's just not concentrated enough. But I've heard a lot about the vinegar improving the odors of rash guard. But other, other than like looking into, you know, I haven't, I'm sure people have published on that too, because deodorizing stuff is also an important area of, you know, selling products. But that was a long rant. I guess the other thing too, you have to make sure your detergent is optimal for the temperatures you're washing, right? Some detergents work best cold, some heat, but no, dude, if, you, if you're running your gi on a sanitized cycle and drying it, you're good. Fantastic. Hey, that's what matters to me. I don't want to be the stinky guy. And I, I think it's probably a, a safe assumption that if your material still smells even after you washed it, probably you didn't wash it enough or properly because there's some bacteria still in there, correct? Likely, but the thing I don't know on that with a rash guard these are a lot of the reasons a lot of body odor comes from, you know, normal flora eating the lipids and oils in your skin and generating like stinky products. And so what I, I don't actually know if a stinky, chronically stinky, carefully washed and dried rash guard, that might just be like an organic polymer that's been permanently impregnated with like the organic funk that the thing's made. So I, I don't actually know if a stinky rash guard is is infected but Mm. i think i mean we all we all love buying gear i mean you know how much is if it's terribly stinky if you can smell it man your training partner probably can it's like okay fine time to retire the you know i have my like meerkatsu tiger rash guard that i love but at some point it's like just retire and buy another man support the guy's work (laughs) (laughs) good advice good advice okay last question i've got for you here Training with minor wounds. So let's say you get a, I don't know, a small cut on your hand or your foot. Very common in jujitsu, pretty much unavoidable. Yeah. Is it okay to train with just a very small open cut that's not infected? And if so, what do you recommend in terms of how you would train with that safely without aggravating it or making it worse? 
So if you're actively bleeding, you got to stop. Like you can't, you shouldn't bleed on your, at least in training. I mean, in an MMA fight, you, you shouldn't bleed on your friends, right? Like even though, because of the bloodborne pathogens, hepatitis, you can transmit through blood. So if you're actively bleeding, like I got gouged with a fingernail on my forehead a few months ago. And it was a deep enough cut that I just, it was annoying. I couldn't stop bleeding. So we had to disinf- clean, disinfect, stop training. But minor abrasions and minor cuts, a little bit of Vaseline on top of the wound to protect it, and the right kind of Band-Aid, some type of Band-Aid or a bandage, adhesive Band-Aid. You want the gauze or you want that sort of nonstick part on the wound, and then you want an adhesive contact on all four sides. Like the regular sort of strip bandage that has openings on either side, is still stuff will get in there. You really need to have like the thing that's occlusive and, and sealed all the way around. Does that make sense? Like yeah. you, you want a complete adhesive seal around the wound and that, in that standpoint, you should be fine, but just keep in mind that any, you know, assuming you don't, I mean, if, if, if you're otherwise healthy and it's still a portal, you, you know, there's not, it's not, it's now something's a slightly higher risk of infection compared to intact skin. If you don't roll with a bandage over it, you're asking for it to get secondarily infected. Staff loves a cut. You know, it's like having it's like having no door on your garage, like raccoons and depending on what part of the world you live, possibly a tiger or a bear can get in there. So it's not as good as intact skin, but you know, a complete adhesive seal around the around the wound is something that should be should be doable. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming by, man. This was a fantastic chat. Is there anything you wanted to bring up here that we didn't already cover, or was this fully comprehensive? I covered the worst infections. I mean, molluscum is another pox virus. That usually, it looks like little pink bumps of belly buttons. Those things are contagious. Most people, it goes away completely with lifelong immunity. That's kind of the least restrictive contagious thing you can grapple with. The wrestlers, generally, they you scrape off the molluscum spots you can see, put a band in on it, they can compete. But I guess what I would tell people is literally, it's what your mom told you, right? Wash your hands with soap and water. Hand washing is literally the most important medical advancement in the history of humans. And I'm not joking in terms of something that like saves lives. Like every, all the bad germs, think of the worst things you can think about in the hospital. Hand washing reduces the chance of transmission. So if you handle your mouth guard, if you scratch your nose, most places now in the era of COVID, we have hand sanitizer on the walls. That takes care of most things you worry about picking up in the gym or your partner. So wash your hands Shower with warm, soapy water after your, you train. Put your ghee in the laundry at a temperature optimized for the detergent you're using. Wash your belt. Put it all in the dryer. Run it through the dryer. And then sweep up all the human debris and disinfect your mats and you're done. Amazing, man. Well, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate all of this. Hey, if someone wants to reach out to you and, and connect, if they have questions or they want to consult with you, what's the best way for them to get in contact? I have an email, green.clayton at gmail.com. My professional email, if anybody wanted to reach out to me in a professional context, is clayton underscore green at urmc.rochester.edu. I'm on Facebook by Clayton Green. You can find me on Facebook. I took down my Instagram page. I was wasting too much time. You know, people in the Discord chat can shoot me messages too. So that's pretty much you Google me, Clayton Green, MD, PhD, you'll find my smiling face and my faculty profile. You know, 
So I'm, I'm findable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll make it even easier as always in the show notes for the podcast. I'll put all of those links. So if anyone wants to reach out to Clayton, just pop up in the, the episode, go to the show notes and there will be some buttons you can press. Um, and Hey, on the topic of the discord, if you want to get in as the listener, best way to do that is to join BJJ mental models premium. If you're not already on that, man, I can't recommend it enough. We've got over 50 hours of audio courseware on there with some of the, the best and most interesting minds in the sport and we're always expanding that library we also offer a really awesome narrative rolling review service where you can send us clips of either your competition footage or just you training with your buddies and we'll break it down we've got a black belt review team that's not just me that looks at this stuff there's a i think almost 20 collective world championship wins on our review team so you're going to get some good feedback there definitely recommend it and of course one of the other benefits is our discord community i'm just really proud of, of our community and how supportive everyone is of each other. We've got some really great experts in there, including Clayton. So definitely recommend giving that a shot if you haven't already. There is a seven-day free trial, so you can check it out at no risk. Again, you can get that at bjjmentalmodels.com, and I'll put the link in the show notes to that as well. But Clayton, thanks so much, man. I really love this chat. I don't think this conversation's ever been had before about how to merge the worlds of skincare management with jujitsu. And this has been something I've wanted to do for a very long time. So really think this is going to be a useful info packet for a lot of people. And I can't thank you enough for coming by and sharing all of your knowledge with us today. Well, you guys are such high-level people on this podcast. I tend to take my knowledge in this for granted because it's just like a normal day for me, but I really appreciate being on being one of the people on this podcast with the other guests you've had so thank you steve (laughs) no worries my friend no worries and of course to everyone out there who listens to us every week appreciate your time and attention as well thanks a lot and we'll talk to you soon take care